things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy, coming at you, as I love to do, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Check your local listings, check for wherever you find podcasts, and you'll see No Mercy. That's K-N-O-W. No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. You know, the date was August 23rd, 2021. The location was Los Angeles, California. And inside this studio were 89 people with face masks on. And it was an audience. It was an audience for the Jimmy Kimmel show. The host that night was not Jimmy Kimmel. It was not my brother, Anthony Anderson. It was not one of the many stars who've been blessed to have that stage in front of that audience to do late night television. It was your friendly neighborhood sports commentator slash sports reporter. Yours truly, the one and only Stephen A. Smith. It was one of the great, great moments of my career. And dare I say, one of the most frightening moments. One of the things that I religiously tell people about that experience, because it's the only time that I've ever done late night. I'm not talking about a late night sports show. It's sports. I'm talking about a late night show. I'm talking about what Johnny Carson once did. I'm talking about what Dave Letterman did. I'm talking about what Jay Leno did. I'm talking about what Conan O'Brien did. I'm talking about what Stephen Colbert is doing. What Jimmy Fallon is doing. What Jimmy Kimmel has done. In such illustrious fashion for over 20 years now. I was hosting a late night show for the first time in my life. And I got to tell y'all something. I'm a little bit different than most. You see, you know, people nervous and they get to shaking. You know, it's shaking or whatever. And, you know, you start sweating and stuff like that. Me, I don't want to gross anybody out. I got to go use the toilet. That's me. I got to go to the bathroom. Okay. And just to be decent and not to gross people out who's listening to this podcast while they were eating or whatever. It wasn't to do a number one. It was to do a number two. So anytime I get nervous, I run to the toilet. And the only thing that makes me nervous is a moment like that. Because you're on national television. At least a million people are expected to be watching you. 
And I knew that I was going to have to do an opening monologue. Ladies and gentlemen, with late night television, the opening monologue is supposed to make people laugh. So essentially, I was put on the air to be a comedian. I had to make people laugh. And I had to do so. The average time was like 13 minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not a comedian. I didn't know if I would make somebody be able to laugh for 13 seconds. So I went to use the toilet. Not once, not twice, not three times, not even four times. I went to the toilet five times in one hour. I wasn't sick. I didn't have the flu or diarrhea or something like that. I don't want to gross anybody out now. I don't want to gross anybody out. I didn't have a colonoscopy where you have to end up going to the toilet for hours before the procedure. It is nothing like that. It was all because I had to host Jimmy Kimmel Live. And then here was the kicker. I go in there and I'm usually with ESPN and, you know, you got a writer here, a couple of producers there, whatever, whatever. In this particular instance, ladies and gentlemen, I walked in there. There were like 12 writers. There was a producer for every segment. And then there was like an additional eight to 10 producers. There's like 18, 20 people. I mean, I was straight. They were phenomenal. I don't even know their names and I love all of them for life. Because they took care of a brother. I got to tell you, they really, really did. Those writers were phenomenal. They were fantastic. Again, I don't even remember their names because it's the only time I ever met them. I love them forever. Jimmy Kimmel is my man. I've, I've only met him a couple of times. I love him just because of his damn staff. They were phenomenal. But I remember this moment. And it was 20 minutes before I went on the air. And my producer was there. My man, Rashawn. My assistant. My personal assistant for the last 17 years, Sumatra Hawkins, she was there. My bodyguard and my brother, Juvie, Juan Santiago, he was there. And they said, what's the matter, Steve? What's the matter? And I looked at the room and all these people just sat there with these glim, you know, just, just, just glim looks on their face. And I said, oh, damn. This is messed up. My man Rashawn said, what, 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 what? I said, you see that look on their face? I said, you know what that look is? You on your own now. Remember that? That's exactly what that look is. You're on your damn own. And all of a sudden, all of this talking that I have done for years. Yeah, I'm sports, but I don't want to just do sports. I love sports. I'll never let it go. But I want to talk news. I want to talk politics. I want to show that I can be a host, not just a commentator, not just a pundit. I already proved I could be a reporter. And now I want to venture into the land of late night. What the hell is going on? They looked at me and they said, you got it. Here it is. The former CEO of Walt Disney, Bob Iger who I love dearly, he made it happen. Bob Chapik, the present CEO. Peter Rice, the former executive, they made it happen. Kareem Daniels, 
Uh, you, you don't know this, but big time executive for Walt Disney. He helped make it happen. Love these guys. But everybody was like, you're on your own now. We can't help you from this point. And I remember that. And to this day, it's one of my proudest moments as an on-air talent in my entire career. It wasn't because everybody said I was really good. It wasn't because I had over 1.1 million viewers that night, which was second only to Stephen Gobert. It was because I had the courage to go for it. That I didn't run from a challenge that I wanted to take. Now, my producer, to put him on Front Street, ladies and gentlemen, is crazy. This man thinks I could be a comedian. See, that's going too damn far. I'm not, I'm not that dude, okay? Yeah, I can make you laugh or smile occasionally. I ain't no damn Steve Harvey. I ain't no Jamie Foxx or Chris Rock. I damn sure ain't Dave Chappelle. I don't have those kind of gifts. Know thy lane. Know thy lane. I'm not those guys. Could I act on a sitcom? I think I could pull it off. I'm already acting in soap operas. I get all of that. You want to write some material and some lines for me and I got a chance of making people laugh for a couple of seconds? Yeah, I could pull that off. But I'm no comedian. But I have no way of explaining to you how in God's name I pulled off doing an opening monologue that lasted 19 minutes. 18 minutes is some change to be exact. I have no idea to this day how I pulled it off, but I'm proud I did. Because when I talk about game change, I talk about a lot of things because, you know, I love what I do for ESPN. I love the fact that I'm on first take every weekday morning from 10 a.m. to 12 noon. I love the fact that we venture from sports to the world of pop culture and entertainment to the world of news and politics and beyond. You never know what the hell is going to come out of our mouths on first take. And I'm the ringleader. And I love that. And I'm very proud of it. It's what people have come to know me for. I'm grateful for it. But after doing it, for being on television for over 20 years, after doing first take for the last 11 years, every single year I've been number one, I reached a point where I understood that it was important for me not to just be known as a great sports analyst. It's important that I'm known for being more than just that. I was on a mission. When I decided to take this challenge of doing no mercy, and it is a challenge because it's not sports. Call it cocky, call it whatever you want. If I was doing a sports podcast, I have no doubt that I would kill it. I'd have no doubt that I'd be near or at the top of the food chain. It's no doubt in my mind. It's what I do. But to be willing to have a podcast that touches on pop culture and entertainment, that does a plethora of interviews, that touches on politics and beyond, that tackles divisive, controversial issues and all of this other stuff. To talk to everybody from hip hop artists to politicians, to political pundits, to motivators, to activists, to directors and producers and actors, 
not just sports figures. That's a different challenge. And it's one that I'm incredibly happy that I have absorbed and embraced. Because, ladies and gentlemen, I'm not bragging when I say there's much more to me than meets the eye because there is. I was on a mission to break the stereotype of being that sports guy. And that's what I'm doing three days a week with this podcast. I've read your comments. I've heard what people said. People continuously are shocked, surprised to see me talking to entertainers, journalists, politicians, just like I just said. I'm breaking the stereotype. Do you know why? Because how can growth take place without it? How could you possibly become well-rounded if you one dimensional? How could you do that? By the way, it's not like I'm the first. Tyler Perry had to break the stereotype that he was just a producer of gospel stage plays. The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, went from being a wrestler to an actor, a box office actor, to the owner of the damn XFL. Did you notice that LeBron James ain't just a basketball player, but a big-time businessman, an executive producer? How about being the owner of his I Promise Academy? Putting folks in Akron, Ohio, and beyond in school. What about Jay-Z? A rap artist extraordinaire, now a business mogul. We might lament the stuff that we've had to talk about in regards to Kanye West. But ladies and gentlemen, before he opened his mouth with unsolicited, unnecessary, insensitive diatribes, he was a billionaire. Being one dimensional ain't the thing. It isn't. It's about embracing challenges and accepting them. And letting the world know, putting them on notice that you know what? There's no, there's no line that I can't cross. You're not going to pigeonhole me. You're not going to marginalize me. That's one of the reasons why on this podcast, you see me interviewing hip hop artists and artists altogether because I'm so appreciative, so thankful, so grateful that they showed me and showed so many of us. Don't put us in a box. Don't put us in one lane. I don't mention this brother enough, but I'm going to mention Steve Harvey for one reason and one reason only. You remember him? He was supposed to be a comedian. He's had a hit radio show in the morning for years. He also has, or had his own daytime show. And oh, by the way, don't you love him on Family Feud? I know I do. I know a few of these brothers, not all of them. I know a lot of people. But when they talk to me, you know what they get from me? Gratitude. Their bravery, their courage, their willingness to say, don't put me in a box. Don't use this to try and define me. You're not going to find me where you're looking for me from. You're not going to find me there. Because that means you have limitations on what I can do. I'm not going to have limitations on what I can do. My intent is to kill it with this podcast. And once I do this, I'm going to do something more. I'm acting on soap operas for crying out loud. 
I was on General Hospital Tuesday and Wednesday. I was on General Hospital. I'm going to be on again next Monday. Who knows what you might see me doing down the line. I might try to take some acting lessons. I might win an Emmy one day. Hell, how about an Oscar? Kobe did it. Why can't I? Speaking of Oscars, Emmys or whatever else you want to call them. My guest coming up wouldn't be surprised at all if he sets the world ablaze. He's done so much over the years. Most people's favorite character that was played by him is Mr. James Ghost St. Patrick on the hit series Power on Stars. I've seen him in a multitude of movies and shows. His brilliance continues to elevate to other levels. But I got news for you. No matter what he is as an artist, it's nothing compared to what he is as a person, as a man. I've known him for years. I love him. He ain't just a friend. He's my brother. His name is Amari Hardwick. And the one thing that you can never do when it comes to him is put him in a box. He'll break out of it in a heartbeat and then school you as to why you would even think you could have put him in there in the first place. He's a special brother. I can't wait to talk to him. I can't wait till y'all hear what he has to say. He's up next on No Mercy with Stephen A. Don't touch that dial. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? Welcome back. I'm excited. Ecstatic, actually, to interview my next guest. He's made a career playing some of the most complex characters on the big and small screen, from Army of the Dead, and sorry to bother you, to producing the horror film Spell and role of, of course, James Ghost St. Patrick on the hit star show Power for six years. His latest project is the family comedy streaming November 25th on Paramount+. Plus called Fantasy Football. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to interview one of the great, great actors going on today. He's also my brother, the one and only Amari Hardwick. Big time. What's going on, man? How you doing? How's everything? Man, I'm so happy to be here with you, Stephen A. I'm here, bro. I'm locked in. I'm ready for this uh, premiere, for the release. I'm ready for all the festivities, the pre-tailgate parties, the post-tailgate parties. Right. I'm ready, bro. So listen, it's me talking to you here, so I'm going to start my interview off the way I always do with my first question. How's the family? How are you and the crew? <laughs> I need more rest. I'm getting that. <laughs> I'm going to start out with that answer, right? That's right. I, I need more rest. I'm going to get it. But uh, the kids are good, man. They're back in school. First time in two and a half years. Wifey was homeschooling. They're back in. They feel good about it. You know, the barometer is always your kid who's most shy. 
Mm-hmm. And the son is our most shy kid, and he is absolutely adoring the school. So all is good, man. All you know, good. some people some people like myself think about homeschooling. You went ahead and did it, just as an aside. Answer that question for me. As parents, you elected to make that decision to homeschool over the last two and a half years. Why was that? Yeah, well, COVID, you know, year one, the choice was was obvious. Um, yeah. Aided. It was aided and obvious that COVID made it where a lot of parents were doing that. Jay just so happens, like a lot of us, like yourself, who've been able to put food on the table in a pretty handsome way. She obviously was afforded an opportunity to be home and not have to work. So right. she comes from producing, as you know, being a little sister of yours. She comes from publicity. Yeah. So now the, produ- the producing has been producing these young minds, man, as the teacher. And then post-COVID year one, mm. uh, meaning COVID year two, we started to put them in a school when we moved to South Florida and made a decision that Jay was just in a in a nice groove. And so why why break the groove? And then this year I was like, I had to, Papa had to put that foot down. <laughs> I was like, you know what? The whole house benefits if these rug rats get their behind back in the school where there's, right. where there's a different kind of rug beneath their feet. So they they've really enjoyed it. It's been great, man. Let's transition. You talk about a groove. What about your groove? Fantasy football, this new project. You're gonna be with Kelly Rowland, obviously, myself. Talk about that for a second and why you decided to do this project. Well, I mean, I guess back to I guess it piggybacks, you know, the point that you led in with, which was about the kids. Yeah. Finally, I was able to have a movie where the kids can watch the beginning all the way to the end without having to cover their eyes or, or plug their ears, you know. <laughs> yep. Papa had done uh, the better parts of rated R material yeah. for the most part of their lives. And so the first decision was that of Brave and Nova finally get to watch a movie Papa can be in. Secondly, but maybe even more preemptively, the thought was a family movie was needed on my dossier, if you will, on my resume. So mm-hmm. there haven't been that many, you know, Stephen A., there haven't been that many family movies that come to you like this where football is just the backdrop. I definitely would have said no to something that at this point, football was the the forefront. I wanted it to be the backdrop. I'm proud that I'm able to bring my life as a football player into my present life as an actor. But again, it's to the backdrop. And the forefront, of course, is being Marseille's father, is being Kelly Rowland's uh, husband, and it's obviously being Roan Flynn's competitor. Trying to get my slot back, bro. He tried <laughs> to take my group. He right. tried to take it, bro. <laughs> so it's, a, it's, it's a great family fun movie. And I know you know it as well, being a father. We don't really have a lot of those where we can sit down with our legacy uh, via VSAR kids and really enjoy. And from 8 to 88 years old, from the grandparents' age all the way to the kids, they can all enjoy this movie. Man, listen, I'm no actor. You are, okay? I know I'm in General Hospital and stuff like that, but damn it, I'm no actor. But but, I'm on on, on a little something right now. I actually did animation. I did that strictly because of my daughters. I wanted my daughters to hear my voice in a movie if they couldn't see me. But I ask you this question. You talked about turning down. I mean, this is something that you couldn't turn down. Knowing you the way that I do, you are a bit picky and a bit choosy and rightfully so. Talk about the things that you've turned down, not specifically, but just your mode of thinking when it comes to accepting or rejecting a project at this stage and point in your life and in your career. What leads to those decisions? That's a great question. I think, A, for me, I guess I'll start with what you operatively stated in the phrase at this point in your life. Yeah, that's that's the that that has really become operative for me at a point. It was a different operative. You know, your modus operandi is different when you look at a certain project and it's 10 years back and you Mm -hmm. go, I kind of got to say yes to this. But at some point you're in a position where you can say, "Okay, let me dig into the bag. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, as Deion Sanders would say, you know, oh, you got enough in that bag to boot. Mm-hmm. Well, as hellified as a compliment that could be, I started to realize then I'm beholden to dig into that bag. And as much as I see you and I'm proud of what you speak about as it pertains to being a former basketball player, hey, what I love is that you can talk not just football, not just basketball, obviously, not just baseball, but you know, if you really had about five minutes, you don't even need more than five minutes. You could talk every other sport that we've never heard your voice be connected to. Mm-hmm. So it's just a gift um, to non-gift equation for me. I look in the bag and I go, God, what else do you have in there? That's me. And when doing that, I kind of go, what have I done already? What outfit in the bag have I already put on if it were analogous to clothing? Oh, I played that. Oh, I wore that already. Oh, but this one, I haven't worn that yet. Mm -hmm. And then it's really about, you know, taking on, somebody asked me recently, they said, is there a level of courage that is needed? Bravery, if you will. I said, on everything. It's never one role in particular that you have to put on your courage hat and dive in the plane. I think every one of them, you kind of come to a space where you go, there's a bit of a fear that I can find in every, sing- in every single thing I've said yes to. So for me, it's looking in the bag and deciding what outfit I haven't worn called character. Whatever the fan base wants me to stay with, I sometimes use that as gasoline and fuel to prove not only them that I can play it, but I also want to prove to myself. I feel like there's a lot of things I can do. And so it really becomes a matter of, let me expansively fly as far and as wide as I'm possibly able to. And when the chips fall, and the chips will fall, when the dust clears, did I do due diligence at taking it on, whether I nailed it or not, whether I knocked it out of the park or not, whether I sunk the jumper or not, did I do due diligence in taking it on and playing it to the best of my ability? If I say yes, and I still didn't do what I needed to do or what I could have perceived a colleague of mine doing better at what I didn't, you know, decidedly nail, mm-hmm. then maybe I take a step back. And at that point I go, okay, I know what my wheelhouse is. I know what I'm comfortable with. But hey, I do realize that when you said to me very long ago, oh, there's not a lot you can't do. I kind of have held my hand to the fire that you spoke that day. And they're not only the use of the world who have spoken it, there's also people within my family, within the intimate space called the tribe I made and the birth family I come from who will remind Mm -hmm. me there's a lot you can do, son. So why not do it all? Because before you know it, you know, that time does come to a close where you can't perhaps drive to the hole with the same ferocity that that you once could. And maybe you got to stay out and shoot the fadeaway jump shots. But at this point in my career, there's so many opportunities for me to play different positions. Um, Again, if analogous to the characters I've taken on, why not? I had uh, producers, you know, I got people working for me and, you know, they were talking to me about Amari Hardwick and this, this is nugget of information we want you to know. And I said, y'all do know this is my brother, right? I mean, I, I kind of know him well, you know, so we talk all the time. This is my man. We go back years. And I I, I, I preface that, I preface w- with that by getting ready to ask you this question. I want to know when you talk about these lanes that you're willing to partake in, these challenges that you're willing to embrace, could you talk about the role that power, the show power that you starred in for six seasons, the role that that played in you ultimately reaching that point in time where that courage, that bravery, that self-insistence made you say, it's time to venture beyond Ghost St. Patrick. It's time to venture beyond all of that and do something different. Was there a point during that time where this all hit you or was it before then? Wow. 
I don't know how producers could ever try to give you information to speak on. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do, though. They're helpful. <laughs> so the no mercy point. Yep. And it's both. It is the K-N-O-W and the N-O. The no mercy point for me was um, season four. A There was a moment where I, it was the K-N-O-W mm. um, in your perfectly titled podcast uh, that I'm humble again to be able to to get down on. There was a moment where I knew the mercy of that which I put into the character and into the story. Mm -hmm. I knew that it would come full circle and it would be paid forward, if you will, to me. Okay. And I, and I think a, it was season four and I was not ready to say goodbye to power at all, but in season four, to liken it full circle to the bag if again, analogous is the clothing that we talked about or me yep. deciding to put different outfits. Yeah. Ironically, literally, there was no clothing that was befitting of what some of the fanfare that I was receiving, some of the, not adulation, because that would be more so your craft or your skill set, but the, I guess the, um, the enticing gravitas for people to that character, mm -hmm. James St. Patrick, the enticing gravitas, a lot of which had to do with the exterior of Ghost, not the interior. That again, for the better parts of 12 years, yes, Stephen A has known. Internally, I move a lot like Ghost. The desire to cut across all grains, no matter yep. what it is. This guy broke bad and went to good. Brian Cranston brilliantly playing Walter White broke good and went bad. And so there is that side of Omari that if we were a wind instrument and the horn is being blown, the inside of my horn is definitely one that questions why we must do something this way. So I think that at the point of no suit, only an orange jumpsuit, mm. scruffy, unshaven, not clean, that's the exterior of Ghost that made a lot of people go, Yo, it's fly in characterization. And Courtney Kemp bodied what she wrote and 50 nailed what he exec produced as well as acting alongside and opposite Omari. But now Omari's job as Tom Brady of sorts to play quarterback on this job, yeah. looking obviously between the likes of people like Pat Mahomes and other black quarterbacks, Randall Cunningham, if you want to go back in the day. Yep, uh, Warren Moon. Warren Moon, Doug Williams. Yep. Omari is playing quarterback, but he's playing quarterback for a squad after actually having been a football player where team matters most to O. So at some point in those orange jumpsuits in the jail scene, Stephen A., I remember thinking to myself in a quiet moment, in a very reflective quiet moment, I remember thinking, I have done all the facets of Ghosts that Courtney and 50 hired me to do. Not just the inside of the instrument called the wind instrument, but mm -hmm. also the complexities of a guy that then after loving on his daughter played by Don Shea or loving on his son played by Michael Rainey Jr., he can then go blow someone's brains out in a momentary instant after just loving on his family, doting as he loved on his family, not just a passerby night father, but someone who was active and very present. Someone that many people forget in one episode, I actually went and talked to the twin school and to their respective classroom and then could turn around and be next to Tommy and we could wreak habit through the greater parts of New York City. That's crazy. That's the exterior. If you add to it, the decorative beauty and the suits and the, the penthouse and the lap of luxury that he always sat in. But then all of a sudden you put me in jail. 
and I ain't got much. Yeah. All I got is all I got is my eyes, Stephen. I don't have a physicality. I can't really fight anybody. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace, Charlie Murphy's character is beating me yep. up. I got to take the beatings. At one point, I remember sitting there reflectively in one of those jail scenes in Walhalla at the jail where we shot. And I remember thinking, now I'm just at a place where I'm sitting alone and my castmates are somewhere in Steiner in Brooklyn or in other respective boroughs throughout New York. And they're kind of working away from me and I'm yeah. alone. So I remember, Stephen A., it's the moment where you get alone. And I equally remember you calling me in season five and saying, hey, oh, sometimes I feel lonely. Yeah. Rest in peace, Stuart Scott. Enter yep. another person who looks like Stuart Scott. His name is Stephen A. Smith. How does that feel? Oh, it must be incredible. Stephen A., fly. Flap your yeah. wings and go. And Stephen A. hit me as a little bro. And you said, hey, big bro's here to tell you that can be lonely the higher you fly. So there were moments in season four where it was almost perhaps foreshadowing what I was headed into, which was a flight that was a bit away from those castmates, a bit away from the producers, a bit away from the network of stars. Mm -hmm. And I started feeling that in season four, like, I guess God's talking to me. I'm about to be alone and away from this crew a bit. I remember when you and I had that talk too, because I had called you and you were just in that zone. And I just said to you, and I said, look, I talked about how you looked. I talked about how you carried yourself. I talked about how your character was bilingual. I talked about the versatility that you were putting on display. I said, my brother, look at this. This is something special. And you said, yeah, but I'm alone. And I don't feel like I'm being I'm being embraced. I feel like elements of this character that I don't want to be embraced is being embraced and it's in jeopardy of defining me and I don't want that to happen. And so now here we go. From there. You, the way you just put it, I couldn't, I'm glad you said it, eh? Because I yeah. couldn't say it like that even back then when you talked to me. And I couldn't articulate it the way that you just did a millisecond ago. I, I just, I can't. You're outside looking in. I can outside look in at your world and know the things spoken about Stephen A., know the controversy that surrounds a strong alpha male who says what he feels and feels what he says, but equally has a very massive sensitive heart. I never forget the interview where you sat across Allen Iverson, a culture shifter, an ecosystem shifter, not just for the industry called basketball, not just for the industry at large, generally speaking, called sport, but mm-hmm. for the ecosystem of our culture and our world at large. Allen Iverson played a massive part in that which Michael Jordan equally did. And I remember you making it where he cried across from you. He got to tears talking about his relationship with Larry Brown. Never forget that interview. Brilliant to me. So there was a point where I felt like Allen Iverson across from you in that interview that I saw as your little bro, who wasn't even steeped in my relationship with you yet. It was starting. Yeah. But I remember feeling at times the way that I saw Allen in his emotive expression when you interviewed him i remember feeling grace for him mercy back to yeah. that word i was like oh, i feel oh my god that's mm-hmm. lonely so, is a so, funny place to be not alone not not alone every moment that you go to right because you feel like everybody's around you eh? but yeah. lonely in a space with everyone around you that's right where no one's getting what you need them to get so they can understand and you can feel comfortable enough to really reach out and express yourself instead of internalizing and holding things in because you know in your heart of hearts they're just not going to get it. But here's the question. Where are you right now, mentally, spiritually, 
compared to where you were back in season four of Power? As we sit here in 2022, where are you now in that regard? Man, I've climbed the ladder, bro. Mm. And I want viewers and listeners, a particularly the, the, the young versions of yous and me's, right? Because they are raised on, on a greater level of love, and that is called inverted hate. Mm. Or explain hate, that. Or hate, which yeah. is called inverted love. I'll gotcha. explain it. Stephen A. and Omari Hardwick are forever. Stephen A. Smith, let me give you a full family, family uh, surname and nomenclature, particularly in honor of your mom passing recently. Yeah. You and I, at some point, have to make a decision whether to believe the predecessors, ancestors, or ancestors, in, and or, perhaps maybe more ancestors than ancestors. Yeah. But absolutely ancestors as it pertains to black men. We're not a double minority, but we often more threatened by the powers that be, quote unquote, because perhaps we are more threatening mm -hmm. than the double minority. We are perhaps yeah. more threatened because we're more threatening. Yes. In reality, you and I at one point have to make a, a decision as to whether the litmus test given by the predecessors colored black and male when stating, Stephen A, you got to be 10 times better than your white colleagues. Omari Hardwick, you got to be 10 times better than your white colleagues. We have to make a decision whether to be arrogant and not go to that sage advice or not go with it. And or we have to make a decision as to whether to be wise and become a sheep at that moment and to follow the lead of the shepherd stating to you that which they've walked and they've traversed that yellow crack road and they know what they're talking about. You and I made a decision to do that. After our generation, eh, there is a reality that the life in general, as well as for minorities, as in 35 and under minorities in mm -hmm. age, simply got more comfortable. It simply is a fact. And by becoming a more comfortable environment where even every respective pookie that you and I grew up with in the hood has yeah. a cell phone, his family might have nothing to even account for to give taxes of that which to pay Uncle Sam with. But they have enough money to get young respective whomever you and I grew up near enough or in the hood with a cell phone. So life is a lot more comfortable. Answers are accessible. Siri is the best friend of everybody. You can Google an answer overnight. There's immediacy all around you. And what that is, in my opinion, created is a belief system where without knowing, we have become a people a bit more who absolutely would go, no, I ain't going to go through that. <laughs> Whatever you talking about later for that, I ain't going to go through that. Right. You and I kind of had to follow the lead. Yeah. We couldn't say, nah, later for that. We news. didn't have that choice. Save that, Pops. I ain't with that. Watch no. what I do. But the, the young brother and the young sister now can get away with kind of saying that. So all colors included, white, green, polka dot, red, yellow, everything under the sun. But particularly speaking from the cafeteria table color, that which you and I first came from, before we got to roam around the entirety of cafeteria table, we come from a black table. So we had to wake up one day and go, Mm, how do the roses smell now? They keep telling me, stop and smell a rose. Okay, I'm smelling the rose. Now the rose smells as such where you go, y'all don't think I can fly more than that which you're trying to handcuff me to? Right. 
Y'all don't think that Stephen A can absolutely have conversations that might have a political undertone to them equally? You don't think that sports, by the way, has a political undertone to it? It's created out of politics. Everything, in fact, is politics, as absolutely. the incredible Nikki Giovanni and Sonia Sanchez would say. Nikki G and Sonia Sanchez would say everything's political. Someone walking in a room and feeling a way about you and I when we walk in a room, that's political. Mm-hmm. They've decided to fill away because of a preconceived notion. Preconceived notions match politics. Brown, white, yellow, red. Hey, let me propagate that this color does things this way. Let me make a joke that this other group does it that way. And hopefully it'll stick and it will keep everyone in a box and handcuffed to that preconceived notion. And we'll be in control that way. Everyone will be controlled. And you and I see the forest from the trees and we know we don't want you to be seen. We don't want to be seen in that monolithic way that you want us to be seen because we know there's something out there. We saw T.D. Jakes once say, I saw T.D. Jakes once say, uh, explain himself to, explain a story rather to Oprah, where he talked about uh, uh, tigers in a cage or whatever the case may be. Well, why is the tiger cage, particularly if it's homegrown and it's not necessarily out in the wild? It's caged because... There's something instinctual within him that says there's something more out there. There's right. something more out there. And you know, the minute you lift him from that cage, that's what he's going to search for. That's a great perspective. So it's all love. What I've learned is Stephen A can say so, oh, inverted love is hate. Absolutely. They're next door neighbors. There is a thin line, if not an anorexic line, my big brother, between hate and love. They're right next to each other. Mm-hmm. You can have disdain for someone. You can have disrespect. I mean, respect is king. To be respected is phenomenal. And somebody could say maybe like is an underrated word within the English language. Absolutely. To like yeah. someone is incredible. People leave each other all day long who they love. But to like someone is fantastic. But to love someone, hate is right there. When you take your trash out in the house called love, the next door neighbor taking their trash out is hate. And they're kind of yeah. looking at you take their trash out. And you go, why are you looking at me if you actually love me? Or if you hate me, why are you looking at me? And if you love me, if you're looking too hard, that means that I got something on my face and you should come over and not be afraid to tell me, hey, you got a little something on your face. I love you too much to not tell you. And if you hate me, then why are you even caring what's on my face? Because you hate me anyway. Nah, it's because there's a hybrid between. It's a smorgasbord of reality that surrounds hate and love. But hate and love, they hang out, bro. So there's a new world order for people to go, yo, I'm being petty. What's petty? Petty's cool. I'm kind of hating on you. So you kind of you kind of love me then. Yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe without realizing it. And that's where we now are. So a lot of times, A, for me, I'm like, if I'm going to take on these roles, I'm going to take them on with an objective to not serve myself. Why would you stand in front of the mirror and serve that which God has already served you? He gave you that, but we're in the business of servitude. Hey, you get on these podcasts, not for your own well-being. You're fine. You're getting on to move the ecosystem forward. So for me, I take my role sometimes, bro, just for the people. That shit ain't got nothing to do with Jay Nova Bray. It just be for the people. I just want the people to go, well, hell, if O can do it, maybe I can do it. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? This is the thing, and there's something that a lot of people may not know about you, but I know this about you. You talk about doing something, and you're just trying to move for the people, and you're trying to make your contribution for the betterment of the whole. You do that in the world of sports. 
went to University of Georgia, played football at Georgia. The great Champ Bailey, one of the greatest cornerbacks in the history of football. I believe that was your former roommate at the University of Georgia. I wonder often how much of a role does that play or how does that influence you when you're giving advice to professional athletes? Because what a lot of people don't realize is you know quite a few. Quite a few mm-hmm. reach out to you. Quite a few confide in you. How does that influence what you say to them, particularly in the year 2022, having a level of understanding that they may not have at this point in time in their careers. Yes, it influences it uh, first and foremost in a locker room setting. I think you and I both a wish that the world of sport wasn't so dynamic in the sense that the dynamicism has grown into the cameras coming into the locker room and being afforded the opportunity to hear every word that the coach, head coach, general manager, and or respective position coaches of all sport are telling their team. I don't really wanna know all that's happening in in a locker room because I come enough from a locker room to know that's a privacy moment, that's a privacy moment. That is a thing that should be held within that, I don't know, tiger in the cage mentality that you speak about, the construct that the incomparable T.D. Jakes speaks about, Bishop T.D. Jakes. It's the same thing. The locker room is a place to first incubate that which you believe, I think you astutely stated, what you can then springboard off of in your belief of potentiality that you can be bigger. But the original cage is the locker room and it's sometimes sexy. It's not a negative connotation to the word cage. It's awesome. So I think these pro athletes who've decided to knock on Amari's door and go, hey bro, can I you know, pick your brain on a couple of things? I think part of it has to do with and how it influences me in in terms of what I give back if they're asking for advice or even if they're just asking for a hug, bro. I think a lot of it is informed by the way that they approach me in the locker room. And you know there's a million ways to approach someone in a room, let alone a locker room. You can walk up to somebody and go, I like what you did last game. I like what you did in the first half of the game. I think that you should try it this way. And I think that I equally need to ask you how I should try what you saw that I just did. Mm. So, or you can approach it and go, yo, don't tell me anything. I just rock with you, but I don't really want to know anything you have to offer me. Every single athlete who I've signed up for, they've all come with that level of humility. They've come with that level of humility. They come with this. I mean, Jason Tatum one night, I was about to have my colonoscopy, bro. As you know, Mm. you're not supposed to go to sleep. You can't really go to sleep once you start drinking the juice. Mm -hmm. So Jason calls and they're in, I guess they're in, it wasn't Dubai. They were in Toronto for the last stretch. As you know, nobody knows more than you before they started the game one, which was a day later, if not two days later. Mm -hmm. And Jason said, I'm going to stay on the phone with you. Oh, I said, Jason, I can't go to sleep tonight. I'm going to stay on the phone. So Mm -hmm. we talked for two hours about life. And he said, I've always been fascinated as to the process for anybody who I admire in any respective field that they're in, but particularly entertainment. And athletes are often misnomered as non-entertainers, but they are entertainers. And they're often misnomered absolutely as non-artists. And hey, you know that athletes are artists. So at some point, he said to me, I never got to ask you, big bro, when we met. And I met him through Jalen Brown, another incredible little bro of mine, as you know, as intelligent as they come and cutting across the grain at all times. And at some point, he said, when Jalen introduced us, I didn't get to ask, what was your process getting ready for Ghost or even getting ready to be around the rest of the players or castmates. Mm-hmm. And I said, it was that of being an athlete. And sometimes that got me in trouble, Jace, because I approached them with the same belief that they had a tough outer and inner shell 
that all athletes, as you know, a have to have. So mentoring an athlete is a lot easier for me than mentoring a big brothering actors at times because we get to be sensitive and soft in ways that Omar is not used to. Mm -hmm. So I'm really foundationally, probably as a trampoline, I'm an athlete. And so I springboard into this world of sensitivity, if you will, not that I don't have my own levels and different degrees of sensitivity, but the athlete is definitely chewed out every five minutes from the moment they're six years old. Mm. You deal with these guys and they say, hey, oh, can I cut across the grain like Jim Brown? Absolutely. What I say is, first of all, study Jim Brown and learn what he did in cutting across the grain. Right. Because he made five dollars to run a, a, a football. And after making five dollars, he then went next to Kareem, next to the next to Muhammad Ali. That's right. Uh, and, and this Bill is the Russell, transition. All of them. Yep. This is the transition of Lou Alcindor becoming Kareem. This is the transition of, of Cassius Clay becoming Muhammad Ali. So they played for little to no money. And basically they then went in March for a movement after that. And so learn what they did to then be able to call a coach and say, I'm not going to play football anymore. Jim Brown, you got to play football. You're the greatest ever to run the ball. Well, dear Cleveland coach, I'm not going to play anymore. I'm going to become an actor and watch what I do. And Jim Brown ran off to the races and so many people followed. Mm -hmm. Well, it's an interesting thing when only, I guess, two days after it happened, you're asking this question. Two days prior to this question, you asked me eh? an incredible running back. I won't say names. He's one of the great running backs. Yep. He's from a town that's belovedly grabbed you and I, as much as Philly is yours, as much as New York is yours, as much as Atlanta, L.A. is mine, as much as L.A. is now yours. New York is always me and yours. Shout outs to New York forever for embracing me and you the way that New York has embraced. Mm -hmm. This brother plays for a New York football team. Now, there are two in New York, so somebody can narrow it down. But the brother said, hey, oh, did you take acting classes? That was his hello that night. His hello was flat out. Going straight for the for the cup, not going to walk, not going to carry, going to just go for the dunk. No chaser to this vodka that I'm about to give you, oh, did you study acting? And of course, eh, I knew what he was getting at. He was getting at, oh, you kind of do it so natural. I'm wondering if you just rolled out of the bed called football cutting you, where I might become a Hall of Famer and you never even really got a chance to go with the Chargers. Did it come so natural that you didn't have to train for acting? And so three days later, I made him kind of admit what he was asking. I said, it's loaded. What are you really asking? He said, I think I got a life at acting, though, if I really put my mind to it. I said, you absolutely do. So me giving what you want and have always wanted, which is advice, me giving this to you, you young stud of a player, it is coming with equally the knowledge that you know you would never embrace someone coming to your world of football who was not crafted. So you can't come to this world of acting and not be crafted. I said, do I think you could be an actor? I said, I think you could not only be actor, you could be a great actor. And I said, I'm here. But put in the work. But put in the work. But put in the work. And so it's locker room for me, eh? I don't like to talk to these players around coaches. I don't want to talk around another player. I want to deal with what they came in saying Mm -hmm. to me that they wanted me to deal with, which is them. One-on-one, let's deal, let's talk about life and see where you go. I I got a couple, before I let you get on out of here, I got a couple more questions for you. One would be this, the cerebral approach, because it's naturally instinctually because you're a highly intelligent brother and that's just how you articulate and how you roll. But when you think about your experiences and what's influenced your experiences more, let me ask you this. The homelessness that you once had to endure and through the grace of God and assistance from Denzel and his lovely wife, Pauletta and others, 
Uh, obviously, that had a profound impact on you. But then also, I think about the National Poetry Slam. Two-time winner, that is you. Somebody that's been connected to, in love with, associated with poetry for so long. When you think about the kind of impact you've been blessed and fortunate enough to have on other people, was it those experiences, those trials and tribulations? Was it poetry? What was it that makes Amari Hardwick so influential to so many minds in this day and age, in your estimation? There's a brother a, from a, a, he's in a mental institution and uh and I started sending a very dear friend of mine who runs my IG fan page and I sent her music and I said let this be the medicine for him um she had commented that he wasn't taking his meds and that the the facility didn't necessarily know how to deal with him um but a gracious elegant kid who was just really lonely broken and scared of everything around him I said, send him music. So I sent him music as I've equally sent you, eh? And his reception of the music came with a couple pieces of articulation that I could never, ever come up with. And I thought it was brilliant. And I thought it's the greatest of answer to your question. He said, he hears me inside out. The man that makes this music, he calls the pen a sword. So he says, his pen is like a sword. And he said, every single thing you've sent me of his, he hears me inside out. I think hey, that I'm not a great, great actor. I think that whoever I'm across from, if acting is analogous to one sport, I would make it that of tennis. And if Stephen A and I are playing tennis presently on this podcast, we're hitting back and forth each other. And the greatest of which is when you hit back and forth to each other, there is this maybe cheat code if you will, there's a cliff note, if you will, where God is giving you a gift to kind of hear what Stephen A is not saying when he asked the question he just asked, because it's hearing you inside out. And I guess this kid felt seen and felt heard inside out as opposed to someone walking in. And again, having preconceived notions, which we all have, we all have unconscious biases. Mm -hmm. At some point, it makes you feel away when somebody sees you. So I think seeing a kid and seeing grown people and seeing homeless people when I ride my bike to South Central or from South Central to the Poetry Lounge, speak of that, since you brought it up. Yep. And just stop and I would talk to homeless people. And I remember talking to them and, I, and you know, you might say, oh, you felt home because talking to homeless people reminded you that you too are presently homeless. Yeah, I might've felt more home, but I also felt like what they were saying to me, I could hear it loud and clear and I heard it quick. So in serving other people, kind of real quickly, I can, you know, for the most part, hear what they're not saying. And and I do, I'm aware of it, the older I get, I'm really aware of it. You know, I think it's what made me and 50 so quickly close. I don't know where our relationship is now, but I think the love that we share is that each other reads each other really quick. I think that's our common thread. And I think that's what people kind of gravitate toward. If you're watching a character and you think, hey, he's serving me, I'm Sunday night watching this guy and all his castmates and they're entertaining me for six and a half seasons on Sunday. I think for me, it's not necessarily that. I think these people equally who are at home are giving me an opportunity to when they meet me at the airport and they go, yo, man, I don't know what it was, but I really rock with you. I think even when they make that statement, I don't know what it was. I think for me, I'm like, whatever the camera's catching is that for all of the viewers, I kind of feel if I were in front of all of them, 
I kind of feel what they're feeling before they even can come up to me in an airport and say, yo, you made me feel like this. So I think I get what people feel before they say it. And I, I do think that's a gift. And I think it's what people maybe gravitate towards. My last question to you would be this. Fantasy football, that's coming up November 25th on Paramount+. Plus, and that's a family, fun, thrilled project that Hell you've embraced. <laughs> and here's the interesting thing, and I'm going to throw this at you. You're going to make people laugh. You're going to make people smile. I know that the same dude that had an epiphany in season four of Power that didn't want to be seen, didn't want to project that imagery about a drug dealer that was just smooth and so many and diverse and versatile in so many other ways that were positive, but that was still an element of his character. In fantasy football, what if you do make people laugh? What if you do make people smile? What if you do bring them that unbelievable joy? That's what you're about. That's what you care about, to have that kind of impact positively. If I'm not going to say if, because you pull off whatever you aim to pull off. When you do that, where is that going to leave you? Are you going to be somebody that says, I love doing this. I love this kind of impact. This is what I want to consistently marry myself to. Or are you going to be that Amari Hardwick that I've known and loved for a decade that has this hunger to be diverse, to show his versatility, to show his range, and that potentially may get old. What's it going to be? The latter. It's easy. That's an easy answer. Mm. The latter. I can't. I remember a financial manager told me, she's still my financial manager. She said, you always fly the coop. I said, I don't leave the family. <laughs> she goes, no, you don't leave the family, but you uproot. And that's a great description of me. You told me, oh, I got this big ass house in Jersey. Was it upstate New York or Jersey? Which one? It's Jersey. It's Jersey. You said, oh, I got this big ass place. I want you to come visit me, oh. Hey, as soon as I'm ready to come visit you, I said, hey, you said, I'm not there, oh. I'm in LA. <laughs> you catch me in LA. I said, hey, you I did, can't. sure did. I said, hey, he I said, I'm 20 minutes away. <laughs> I said, hey, I'm coming. I'm finally available this weekend. You said, oh, I'm not there. In that incredible, you know, calm, calm, very, both sides of the of the pillow, cool, you know, candor in which you you give what you give. You said, oh, I'm not there, baby. And I thought, damn it, eh? But when I look at myself, if somebody goes, that old, you okay, you pull it off. I watch pieces of her with Tony Collette. She's the ghost, and you're like this hempecked husband who's a lawyer, scared about what she's gonna do. That's totally opposite of ghost. Okay. And then, you know, now you pull off comedy. Five people in the room out of 15 go, do the comedy. Five other people go, you made me a believer on pieces of her. And then, you know, there's 10 people who go, nah, I'll stick with James St. Patrick. To me, I got to answer the latter. In terms of what you said, the oh, I know. When they come looking for me in that one house, hey, I'm going to be over here at the other house. When they come to that house looking for me, I might go back to Ghost. I'm going to yeah. do Ghost again in a very different setting, in a different setup. But I'll never say about it to, to Ghost. How can I? He's in me. Ghost didn't necessarily make Omari. He introduced me to everybody. Thank mm -hmm. God I knew you before Ghost. But Ghost introduced me to everybody. God bless Ghost. God bless Courtney and 50 for that opportunity. God bless Carmi Zlotnick and Chris Albrecht ahead of him for the opportunity. Mark Canton, all of the producers. 
But in reality, as you know, eh, the big ass O in the middle of that letter, G, the H letter, and the S and the T letter, spelling ghost, there's a big ass O in the middle, dog. I'm right in the middle yeah. of that. So it's right. not vice versa. He didn't make me. I aided in making ghosts. And even with Joseph Shakur's help as my Tommy, he aided me in what we created out of Ghost. I aided in what he created out of Tommy. So now that we as a huddle have created Ghost and he lives in the zeitgeist forever, A, it's impossible for me not to go back to the house and sometimes hang with him. I mean, Luther Vandross said it great. He said, a house is not a home. If you're not there. (laughs) That's right. So you and I got to be in every house that we've set up. I set the world up loving Ghost. How dare me not go back to ghosts? It'll just be a different setting. All that means is that you're going to set the world on fire. Fantasy football streaming November 25th on Paramount Plus. My brother, the one and only Amari Hardwick. Love you, bro. Can't wait to see you. And I'll see you soon, my man. All right. Hug each other soon. Love you, bro. No doubt. All love. Talk to you later. All right, my man. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline Until I flatline, I push it to the red line Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Thanks again to the man, the myth, the legend The one and only Amari Hardwick Coming out with his new show November 25th On Paramount Plus Called Fantasy Football Can't wait to see it Can't wait to see it Just so happy for him He's been through so much He's overcome so many obstacles, so many challenges throughout the years. And to see him in this place, so happy, so convicted, so committed to what he's doing, so accomplished at this point where he can afford to turn down opportunities he once had to accept and embrace, uh, it's a beautiful thing. I'm not going to lie. It was beautiful listening to him tell us, guess what? That character that was Go St. Patrick, you might see it again. Maybe not that name, literally that character, but that similar kind of character because, my goodness, he played it in a special fashion. Handsome, debonair, bilingual, professional, yet a killer. Can't judge a book by its cover. That's the message that he wanted to send. And I'll be damned if he didn't do it. But there's so much to peel from what he had to say. What he had to overcome. Brother was homeless, living out of his car, was assisted by the greatest actor that I've ever known, Mr. Denzel Washington and his wonderful wife, Pauletta. Those weren't the only people that helped him, though. Listening to Amari Harwick, there's plenty of others. Loves his wife to death. Got two beautiful kids. Doing his thing. But noticed how he said that no matter what he accomplished and no matter where he was, he's not satisfied. Because his satisfaction is mobile. It's a constant moving object. He's cool here until you tell him he should be. Then you go looking for him in that house and he's somewhere else. And then he's cool there and he's doing violent movies, playing a gangster, et cetera, et cetera. And you think he's supposed to be there and he moves over here to comedy and he moves over here to a family friendly, you know, kind of show. What he talked about his kids watching 
because that was important to him. Once his kids see him and they see him in that environment, then he's going to be ready to move to something else because what he wants to teach them is don't limit yourself. I got two nephews. Tell you I got two daughters. But what I really tell you is that I got two nephews. They're knuckleheads. They get on my last damn nerves. But you know why they get on my nerves? Because I love them to death. And they know it. And they abuse their uncle. That's right, Rashawn. That's what they do. They abuse their uncle. Okay? Because they know their uncle loves them. Okay? One's named Josh. The other named TJ. They're corrupt. Just like my daughters. They look at me. They stress me. Okay? And when they stress me, you know what they do, ladies and gentlemen? They smile. That's what they do. They smile. Because we stress in Uncle Steve. But they're going to make me proud. Because they're going to go for it. And that's what I want them to do. And they're going to inspire me to go for it. Because that's what I want to do. And I receive assistance in that kind of thinking because I surround myself with people like Amari Harwick who are about that life. See, the world, when the world wants to marginalize and pigeonhole you, it's a reason they want to do that. Because they want to save that space of versatility for others. For some reason, they don't want you to have it. You got people who are negative Nellies and, you know, they say, hey, what you can't do. You got other people who leave you down the path and encourage you to go someplace where it's a dead end. You'll have other people who are encouraging you to do something knowing you're ill prepared to do it because you didn't put in the work necessary to prepare yourself to be ready for those opportunities when they presented themselves because they weren't rooting for you in the first place. And then you have folks, particularly in corporate America, who will simply deny you opportunities because why should you have them in the first place? There's a plethora of reasons that people can come up with. God tells us that from the time we're born. But it's up to you to edify yourself and push yourself forward and strive to be all you can be. And to make sure diversity is a part of that. And when you do that, you know what you can end up being? Amari Hardwick, Stephen A. Smith, or anybody else that you want to be that embodies the essence of who you are and the very best that you can be. That's the message that Amari Hardwick was trying to give you while promoting his upcoming project on Paramount Plus, which is fantasy football. By the way, Kelly Rowland, who he's acting with. Remember, she's a part of Destiny's Child. We've all been talking about Beyonce. I think it's safe to say Kelly Rowland has had a good life. You see this woman? She is sensational. I'm so proud of her. Can't wait to see it. I hope y'all can't either. But whether you watch it on November 25th or at a later date, I'm talking about fantasy football on Paramount Plus. Make sure you listen to this podcast. And I didn't say listen to it and that's it. I mean, hear it. Get the message. 
Go for it. Don't limit yourself. Don't put yourself in a box. Don't allow anybody else to marginalize you. But make sure when you make that argument to not be marginalized or to not be pigeonholed, you're able to make that argument from a position of strength, which means you practice, you prepared, you prepped. You did what it took to put yourself in a position where you could be all you could be and nobody could tell you a damn thing. Thanks again, Amari Harwood, for being on this show. Thank you for listening as always. Love y'all. Wouldn't have no mercy with Stephen A. Smith without y'all. Appreciate y'all from the bottom of my heart. I'll be at you three days a week, every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, as promised. Although that ain't going to be the case Thanksgiving week. Okay, I might skip a day or two there. I mean, I might be a bit bloated from the turkey and all that stuff. Y'all going to have to forgive me. Either way you slice it, you'll be hearing from me for the most part every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Wherever you can find your podcast. Tune in to No Mercy with Stephen A. Smith. And remember, as I always tell you, since sports is my background after all. You don't have to know sports to know mercy. Peace and love, everybody. Until next time. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts. Guess who's got a memoir coming out, ladies and gentlemen? Yours truly, Stephen A. Smith. It's entitled Straight Shooter, and it's available right now for pre-order. I have signed these books, just so you know. So you can visit straightshooterbook.com to order your autographed copy today. In the book, I talk about my life before ESPN, growing up in Hollis, Queens, New York, how sports proved to be my salvation. I talk about some of the mistakes I've made in my life and my impact on the world of sports. The book is called Straight Shooter, and it's written to help motivate you to overcome setbacks that maybe prevent you from reaching your dreams. So go right now and order your autographed copy of my memoir, straightshooterbook.com. Don't wait. It's entitled Straight Shooter. Check it out. Don't miss it.